Were the Gospels originally anonymous? Can we have theology without philosophy? And what does it take to be a Christian apologist? Today we will examine these questions. We'll look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, comment on the video of the day, and then take a peek at the comment section. My name is Hayden Clark, and this is Help Me Believe. The Gospel of Luke opens with these words. It says, Since many have attempted to compile an account concerning the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who are eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning passed on to us, it seemed best to me also, because I have followed all these things uh, carefully from the beginning, to write them down in orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty concerning the things about which you were taught. That's Luke 1, 1 through 4 in the Lexham English Bible. What I love most about these verses is that Luke makes explicit how concerned he is with being accurate. He says that many have attempted, quote, and that he has he was mostly concerned with recording the quote things carefully and in orderly sequence. He acknowledges that other accounts have been written, uh, as we know that he likely relied on the Gospel of Mark and possibly even Matthew. It's also widely believed that Matthew and Luke shared another source other than Mark. Luke tells us that he attempted to record things just as the eyewitnesses passed down the oral and perhaps even written history. Here we find that the stories of Jesus were tied to eyewitness testimony. As the history was communicated, it was done so with the control of eyewitness testimony. Ancient cultures did not have the controls that we have today uh, for verifying uh, the veracity of claims. They anchored their oral history and testimony um, through key eyewitnesses. So the idea was that you could um, go and check or verify the story with the eyewitness that w uh, that this particular story was anchored to. And Richard Bauckham makes this case uh, in his book, uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Um, and he says that the names given in the Gospels and in the particular narratives would be the eyewitnesses uh, that anchored the validity of the claims uh, in the Gospels. The idea is that most excellent Theophilus could verify if Luke was telling the truth or not by fact-checking him, uh, if you will, against the eyewitness testimonies of those named in Luke's Gospel. The title, Most Excellent, um, is interesting to me. It's used by Luke elsewhere uh, in the book of Acts to refer to the governor Felix in Acts 23-26 uh, and, and the governor uh, Festus in Acts 26-25. So it's probably safe to assume that Theophilus is not some metaphorical, quote-unquote, friend of God, that's what the word, the name literally means. It's more likely that this is a title that Luke gives to Roman authorities. And likewise, the purpose of Luke's writing is so that this uh, most excellent Theophilus may know with certainty the things that he was taught. And it sounds as if Theophilus um, had heard the news of Jesus, but Luke wanted to paint a clearer picture and nail things down for him uh, so that he could know it with certainty or in a more certain way. He wanted to give him a more exact knowledge of the things that he had learned. So the idea um, that this Theophilus was a 2nd or 3rd century bishop is a complete uh, lunacy. Some people uh, put that hypothesis out there. Why would a 2nd or 3rd century bishop need to be told the Gospels in a more exact manner? How would you get to the point of being a bishop if you didn't even know the biography of Jesus? Now, the most likely identifications of Theophilus that are offered, uh, given the title Most Excellent, are 1. A Roman official or ranking officer, 
And two, a wealthy man from Antioch that supported Paul and Luke on their missionary journeys. And three, Theophilus Benanas, who was high priest between 37 and 41 CE. So that's your scripture for today. Go read it for yourself. Do some study. Uh, who do you think Theophilus was? Why was Luke, Luke writing? And um, can we know that these stories were really passed down by um, eyewitnesses? But uh, moving on from the scripture reading, let's look at this article. Were the Gospels originally anonymous? In his best-selling book, How Jesus Became God, Bart Ehrman outlines his case that the Gospels were originally um, anonymous. Now, he says first that the Gospels were written without any attached names to them. So the titles you see in your Bible, like uh, the Gospel of Matthew, they were not originally there. And then secondly, he says that the Gospels were circulated for a century as anonymous before someone finally attached names to them. And they did this to add, quote, much needed authority. Last and most importantly, the conclusion is that the Gospels cannot be attributed to any eyewitnesses or to anyone that would have known an eyewitness. They are the result of a century's worth of anonymous storytelling and editing. Of course, this whole story is as made up as Ehrman imagines the Gospels to be. As Ehrman likes to point out, we do not have the original autographs, that is, the original documents that they wrote. Uh, so how does he know that they are originally anonymous? He doesn't but he wants slash needs them to be in order to discredit them. There has never been a more textbook example of an argument from ignorance or silence. Because we don't have the autographs, we should conclude that they were originally anonymous? What kind of reasoning is that? Without the originals, he cannot even make this case. But per usual, our skeptical friends have ignored an elephant in the room, and this time the elephant is this. There is not a single anonymous manuscript. So we don't have the originals, but we do have um, uh, thousands of uh, copies of the originals, and not a single one of those are anonymous. That is to say, we have no anonymous gospel manuscripts. Every single manuscript that we do have, without exception, which would obviously include our earliest manuscripts, attribute the gospels to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Again, this single fact bolsters the fact that Armin, Ehrman's argument is one giant argument from ignorance or silence. How can you move from one, every manuscript we have is attributed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for the Gospels, to two, they were originally anonymous? Well, reasonably, you cannot. You are arguing, arguing from what you do not know instead of arguing from what we do know. The only, and I mean only reasonable or even possible conclusion is this. As far as we actually know, there has never been an anonymous manuscript, including the original autographs, for the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, we do not have the original uh, autographs, and the reason I'm not making an argument from silence is because every copy we have is attributed to the Ma uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so the only even possible conclusion, unless you just want to throw your hands up um, in skepticism or agnosticism, is that, well, reasonably, or probably, the originals were attributed to them as well. There's no basis upon which you can say that they were anonymous. Is it logically possible that they were originally anonymous? Of course. It's logically possible that you're having a hallucination right now and that I'm not even really speaking. It's logically possible that the Gospels were written by aliens, but who cares what is logically possible? We want to know what is most plausible based on the evidence that we actually have. And all of the evidence, without exception, 
every piece of evidence that we have for the Gospels attributes them to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John without exception. There's not a single case to the contrary. We have fragments that don't mention it, but it's because those fragments don't include the titles. There's a relevant point in this discussion that often gets left out, and that is the book of Hebrews. What does the book of Hebrews have to do with this conversation, with the uh, attribution of the authorship of the Gospels? I thought we were talking about the Gospels. What does the book of Hebrews have to do with it? Well, the book of Hebrews is unquestionably anonymous. Not only is it formally an anonymous, like the Gospels, which means in the body of the Gospels, um, the writers never say, I, Luke, wrote this. And that was a point that uh, the atheist I was in dialogue with recently, uh, Doug from Pine Creek, was trying to make. But it just simply doesn't matter. So nowhere in the body of the text does the Gospels or Hebrews say, I, Hayden, wrote this book. But the earliest manuscripts that we do have for the book of Hebrews are also anonymous. So not only is it formally anonymous, it's actually anonymous according to the earliest manuscripts that we do have, unlike the Gospels. And here's another key point concerning the book of Hebrews. The later manuscripts, the later copies that we do have of the book of Hebrews, attribute the authorship of the book of Hebrews to contradictory people. So some manuscripts may attribute the letter of, uh, to, to the Hebrews from Paul and others to Timothy or whoever else. Uh, the point is that they contradict each other. So the manuscript history um, with, with respect to the attribution of who wrote it is contradictory. So based on this evidence, we are actually justified in saying that the original um, autograph of the book of Hebrews was actually anonymous. This is what a truly anonymous letter looks like. It has these characteristics. Only God knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Now compare this with the Gospels. There is no contradiction in the manuscript evidence. Zero. Not only are they all attributed to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but they are attributed without contradiction. It is not as if we find a manuscript um, with the traditional Gospel of Matthew attributed to Mark or Luke or uh, Peter or somebody else. You, you, never, you don't find this in the manuscript history. So the historical record for the Gospels is both unanimous and uniform. Now, the reason for the contradictory attribution in the case of Hebrews may well very be may very well be what uh, Ehrman postulates for the Gospels, namely that uh, people added these names later to the letter to give them much-needed authority. Um, the letter became widely accepted um, by the early church, and somebody thought it might be useful to tack on uh, an author's name to the title of it, or something like that. Who knows? Or, or maybe Paul really did write the letter. Um, of course, we, we just don't know. Now, I, I conclude with my friend Dr. David L. Allen, um, who makes a very convincing case that Luke actually wrote the book of Hebrews, but you can um, research that for yourself. The title of his book is Luke and Authorship. But the gospel manuscripts are uniform in their author attribution, and they're also unanimous. Uh, there's no contradiction, and every single one of them is attributed to either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Now, another major problem with this anonymous scenario that Ehrman tries to make is, as pointed out by Brant Petre, um, the utter implausibility that a book circulating around the Roman Empire without a title for almost a hundred years could somehow, at some point, be attributed to exactly the same author by scribes throughout the world and yet leave no trace of disagreement in any of the manuscripts. That's from uh, Brant Petre's The Case uh, for Jesus, page 29. So the idea that they circulated for hundreds of years, or a hundred years, without any attribution to the authorship, and then somehow they all came out attributed to the same authors unanimously. 
the hypothesis that the aliens uh, wrote the Gospels seems more believable to me than that. But remember, this that scenario doesn't just have to be true for Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. It has to be true for all four of them. It's just so incredible that um, there's, there's no reason for believing it. Now, to address uh, one common objection to the traditional authorship of the Gospels is, um, you know, that the Je- that Jesus' disciples were uneducated fishermen, and therefore they would uh, not have been able to write uh, in, in the Greek that we find in the manuscripts. Now, the first thing to point out, which should be obvious to scholars like Ehrman, is that Matthew wasn't an uneducated fisherman. He was an educated tax collector, and Luke and Mark were not even original disciples that were uh, Galilean fishermen. So the first point is that this objection only even has the potential to be leveled against John. Now, the historical record tells us that Matthew was an educated tax collector, Luke was an educated Gentile physician, and Mark we just we don't know that much about, other than that he was closely connected with Peter, Paul, and the church at Rome. So without any evidence to the contrary, we just we have no reason to doubt that Mark at least could write the Gospel of Mark. Now, this objection uh, seems uh, at least a, a little bit plausible or reasonable um, when leveled against John at first sight. But, however, the objection amounts to nothing, as we know that even educated people like Paul used scribes to write down their words as they dictated them. So Paul unquestionably was educated and had the ability to write letters, but we know from some of his letters that he didn't actually write them. He dictated what he wanted written to a scribe, and that's how he went about it. So if Paul could do this, then, you know, why couldn't John or somebody else? But as Richard Bauckham points out, uh, John 21-24 means that the beloved disciple composed the Gospel of John whether or not he actually wielded the pen, and that comes from uh, Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, uh, page uh, 362. But following that, a strong case can be made uh, for John actually being the beloved disciple mentioned in John's Gospel. We won't get into that here right now. The point is that there's no reason to think that John wouldn't have simply dictated the words to a scribe. We know this was a common practice, and we know that even educated people like Paul did this. Furthermore, with regards to uh, John being an uneducated fisherman, I would actually like to push back a little bit on that. While John used to be a fisherman, certainly from, um, from what we know from the Gospels, he would have written this Gospel long after his years as a fisherman. Um, most people believed he wrote it later in life. Um, and after years of studying under one of the most influential teachers in all of human history. But more importantly, when we find when we find out that John is a fisherman in the Gospels, we also find out that he worked for his father who, quote, had hired servants. And so this at least tells us that John comes from a well-off family, and he could have easily received an education. Maybe he didn't. It doesn't really matter. Um, the point is just that he very well may have, and if he didn't, then there's no reason to suspect that he wouldn't have just paid uh, a a scribe to write down or dictate his words. Now, one final point on this is uh, that from the early church fathers. So, like with the manuscript attribution, the early church fathers unanimously attribute the Gospels to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John without exception or contradiction, or without contradiction. So, whether Papias around 120 CE, Justin Martyr from 140 to 165 CE, Irenaeus around 180 CE, the Muratorian Canon from around 180 CE, or Clement around 200 CE, or Tertullian from 200 to 225 CE, the early church unanimously and without contradiction attribute the Gospels to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you don't find this um, 
compelling, there simply is no other competing historical record. The only alternative explanations exist in the minds of modern scholars and YouTube commentators. The idea that the Gospels were originally anonymous is simply without any historical attestation. There is none. You can try and cast doubt on, on the arguments that I've laid forth and scholars uh, lay forth um, in much more detail, but there is no competing historical um, hypothesis. Um, there are no anonymous manuscripts. They just don't exist. All gospel manuscripts that we do have are attributed unanimously to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel manuscript record is without contradiction, unlike the truly anonymous letter Hebrews. The early church fathers, much like the manuscript evidence, unanimously and without contradiction attribute the gospels to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. One is left to marvel at the fact that some scholars like Ehrman, despite all of this, would prefer an argument from silence. It doesn't surprise me that uh, you find these arguments all over YouTube and stuff, but someone as educated as Ehrman simply ought to know better. Now, I want to talk a little philosophy and theology, but first I want to remind you that you can support Help Me Believe by following the link in the description below and becoming a patron supporter for as little as a dollar a month. And with your support, you'll get access to more material like Q&A, early release, the bonus segment of my interviews, book reveals, and much more. Again, just head over to our Patreon page by following the link in the description. Now this next article is titled, What are the Problems with a Philosophy-Free Theology? And this is an article that you can read over at crossexamine.org. You can follow the link in the description. It was written by Jonathan Thompson. He starts the article by listing some uh, Christian anti-intellectual one-liners like, I only need the Bible, not man's word. Uh, I love this response so much I could inject it into my veins. Ken Ham literally says it every five seconds. I only need the Bible. Good grief. Really? Well, apparently you need language. You couldn't read the Bible if you didn't understand English. Um, secondly, you need logic and reason. How did you arrive at the conclusion that, quote, all you need is the Bible? The arguments probably uh, stated something like this. Number one, the Bible is sufficient and alone reveals infallible truth. Number two, philosophy is man's word, which is fallible. And three, therefore, I should not use philosophy and only rely on God's word. That's a structured argument. And you are depending on philosophy to follow that line of reasoning. That's just what reasoning is. It's philosophical reasoning. And so the very idea is self-defeating is the point. And this self-defeating nature of, quote, philosophy-free theology is the first of five points that Thompson points out. Uh, the second is that it is irrational. More fundamentally, when you read a passage of scripture like Genesis, you have a certain philosophy of interpretation that is hermeneutics. Whether you acknowledge it or not is relevant. Some people interpret Genesis metaphorically, and some do so literally or somewhat literally, etc. The difference is in, again, hermeneutics. But what is hermeneutics if, if not simply a philosophy for interpreting the text? And you can't derive this from the Bible itself. Again, you cannot avoid making an appeal to philosophy unless you think you absorb the text through uh, some process like osmosis or something. You, you simply have to reason to conclusions. You can't avoid it. And there's no reason in being like afraid of it. It's not. It's God doesn't think that it is uh, pious of you to not use your brain. That's just ridiculous. 
Similarly, quote, philosophy, free theology cannot adjudicate between competing theological views. So take the Calvinism versus Arminianism debate or substitute whatever disagreement among Christians that you would like. But when arguing for a theological position, your argument will look something like this. The Bible is the standard by which we should judge theological positions. Number two, my theological position is consistent or more consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Number three, your theological position is not so number four, therefore, I'm right, you're wrong. But again, that's reasoning from um, premise to conclusion. You can't avoid that. Without philosophy, we'd be uh, stuck with contradictory theological viewpoints, and of which would they would all be on equal footing. We could not adjudicate between them. Uh, we couldn't adjudicate between orthodoxy and heresy, liberalism and conservatism. Thompson also uh, rightly points out that philosophy-free theology will make you more prone to false teaching. As William Lane Craig has often said, the man who claims to have no need for, for philosophy is the one most apt to be fooled by it. And to quote C.S. Lewis, we need good philosophers, if for no other reason to refute bad philosophy. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Now, not understanding how argumentation, reasoning, and logic works will make you more prone to be fooled by a silver tongue. There are clever people out there who have a stunning ability to twist Scripture in such a way that it's hardly discernible. They lead people astray from the truth. Uh, even in the name of orthodoxy, they do so. Someone trained or at least familiar with or not afraid of philosophical argumentation will be better prepared to uh, detect this uh, fallacious argumentation and things like that. You'll be able to notice um, the error in people's reasoning whenever they arrive at uh, selfish or heretical or whatever kind of viewpoint. But lastly, I would add to Thompson's article uh, a further point, which is this, that philosophy-free theology is a contradiction in terms. A, it's a completely incoherent phrase. And the reason is this. Theology simply is the philosophical inquiry of God. It just is philosophy aimed at God, studying God, using your reasoning, your rational capacities. So how should we respond when people say things like this? Well, one, I quote them scripture. Read Romans 1.20 where Paul says that there are truths that can be known apart from special revelation of scripture. Part of what drives a person like this is that they think the Bible alone reveals truth, or at least infallible truth. So meet them where they're at and smack them up beside the head with some scripture. Two, point out um, how self-defeating this is. Point out that they had to use philosophical reasoning in order to reach the conclusion that my theology is uh, free of philosophy. It's only based on God's word. Um, I just point out that this is self-defeating. Hopefully that will get through to them. But three, ask them if they really think that God um, doesn't want us to think, that God doesn't want us to ask questions or look for reasons, that sort of stuff. Why would he give us a mind that is capable of rationally understanding the universe in which we live in if he didn't want us to do such a thing? Obviously, that can be done in a negative way or whatever, but um, so can reading the Bible. But for don't call them stupid or belittle them or whatever. I admit that that would be easy. This viewpoint is self-defeating. It seems pretty silly, and it's it's not helpful. It, it, it further bolsters the claim that skeptics have about Christians, which is that we don't use our heads, and we literally have people going around saying, don't use your head, don't do philosophy, stuff like that. But, you know, belittling them is, and, and stuff like that is just, it's never effective. It's never going to, you know, bring them out or make them see things differently. It just won't work. So please, for the love of God, literally, be familiar with philosophy. Love philosophy. Philosophy is your friend. It's not the devil's whore, as uh, Martin Luther said it was. And, you know, maybe he wasn't being literal, but th th there's nothing to be afraid of.
So here's a fun article that I came across. It was titled, What Do You Have to Do to Be a Christian Apologist? Uh, It's a question that people ask. There's no harm in asking it. Um, Do you have to have a degree? Do you have to do debates? Do you have to make a full-time income? Uh, None of the above. Um, There's so much weirdness kind of attached to this question. Again, it's a legit question if you want to ask it. But people act like being a Christian apologist is for people who write books and have podcasts nowadays or travel the world debating famous atheists stuff like that that that's really an american thing that's not something inherent um, to christian apologetics per se christian apologetics is simply the rational defense of christian doctrine uh, this obviously isn't limited to a subset of christians who do it professionally or something like that uh, any more than you know only the pastor is supposed to share the gospel that sort of stuff i know we we sometimes operate that way or think that way but it's obviously not true. The Great Commission is for everyone. If you're going to share the gospel with people, obviously you're going to be asked, well, why should I believe that? In which case, apologetics comes into uh, the purview. And just like the Great Commission is for everybody, so is First Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within you. When we share the gospel, again, people are going to ask questions. Why, why should I believe that? It's a perfectly reasonable question, and it should be answered reasonably with because it's true, and here's why it's actually true. And so apologetics is for everybody, and it's a useful tool for evangelism. So the good news is that there are good answers to these questions that skeptical people will, will undoubtedly ask us, um, but you're going to have to do your homework. Um, why would you not want to do your homework, though? Well, when I found out that there were actually good reasons to believe Jesus rose from the dead, uh, other than just take it on faith or whatever, um, I can't tell you how ecstatic I was. Finally, I felt confident to talk about my faith, to share my faith, evangelize, um, because it's actually true, and, and, and I know it, and I can defend the claims. Now, if you don't want to do this hard work, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, tell me how telling people to have blind faith and such um, is going for you. Uh, I can already tell you how it's going. It goes like this. 70% of the next generation are leaving the church as soon as they get to make that choice for themselves. In reality, they checked out long before, um, like when they were teens, early teens, middle school, that age is when um, people who end up leaving the church after high school, that's when they actually checked out mentally. Um, And they went to the internet and they found some atheists saying there aren't any answers because it's all nonsense. And so they checked out a long time ago. So to answer the question, when do I get to call myself an apologist, the first thing to point out, as Jay Warner Wallace does in this article, is that all of us, regardless of vocation or position, are tasked with this honor. In other words, if you are a Christian, then you are an apologist. It's just what it means to be, it's part of what it means to be a Christian, whether you realize it or not, whether you're good at it or not. Um, I would suggest that you realize it and be prepared, as the scripture says, to give it an answer for the hope that is within you. So why do you believe God exists? Why do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Why do you believe the Bible is God's words? Is God's word? That That's a good place to start. Start figuring out how would I answer those questions. And this leads to the second point, point that Wallace makes, which is accept your obligation. This task has been given to you by God. You can either be good at it or not. I'm not trying to guilt you into this, but it's simply a reality. Some are better than others. I mean, I look at William Lane Craig or Robbie Zacharias or Jay Warner Wallace even and think I'm, I'm not that quick on my feet. I, I don't know if I would be a good debater or not. I'm not a bad writer, and I like making these videos and stuff um, when I have time to do them, that sort of stuff. Um, but the good news is I don't have to be like as good as whoever. That's not what it's about. Maybe that's just not who I am. It's not my style, whatever. Uh, Maybe I can serve a different way. And so there isn't a one-size-fits-all. 
I, I love the academy. I love scholarship. I could sit around reading scholarly books and journal articles and stuff like that all day long. Uh, drives my wife nuts. But um, most people can't do this. Um, they just, I mean, they could, but they just simply aren't interested enough to do such a thing. So perhaps your role in apologetics is simply, and it's not simple, is to prepare your children to face the obligations that they're going to face in this world. I mean, for Pete's sake, uh, that's not a small thing. I mean, I'd take every Christian mother and father training only their children in apologetics over a million-dollar apologist traveling the world every day of the week. I'd take that for sure. And this leads to Wallace's final point, which is accept your location. This does not mean don't strive for more if you feel a desire or obligation to do so. Um, I felt like starting the blog and the, this YouTube channel and podcast, uh, I felt like that's what I, I wanted to do. And I've had mild success, I guess. And we'll see where it goes. But if that's what you want to do, then by all means, do it. Um, I'll tell you, though, you, you have to be pretty passionate in order to start a channel or something like that or a blog. Um, success in this arena uh, takes time and consistency. You, you just have to keep doing it over and over, which not everyone will have. And again, that's fine. But again, it, just, it really comes down to your passion. How passionate about it are you? And in, in accordance with Wallace, I would also warn you, do not think that you are going to become <laughs> rich and famous or a Christian hero or whatever. And, and certainly don't think, again, don't think that you're going to become rich or something like that. At the time of Wallace's writing of this article in 2017, he mentioned that, um, you know, and he's a, a best-selling, I think a New York Times best-selling author, traveling the globe and stuff like that. He states that <clears throat> apologetics accounted for only about 10% of his income. And he maintained his career as a detective full-time all the way to retirement. And last I spoke with him, uh, he was still doing part-time work as a retired detective. So I work at a bank full-time. I love it there. I like helping people with their financial problems, things like that. And I, I like the people that I work with. So there's a tendency in this culture to think that if you don't like your job or something like that, um, it, that that's because you need to quit and go pursue your passion or um, and go pursue your passion as your primary source of income. It may work every once in a while, I don't know. I would strongly recommend aiming a little lower. Aim for this. Change your perspective about your day job. Your day job is where God has planted you in order to glorify Him uh, by making disciples, loving people well, and doing good work. Um, I pursue my passion of apologetics and philosophy, that sort of stuff, outside of work. And sometimes during, but don't tell my boss. So having this passion that I pursue you know, on the side or whatever, side gig, whatever, uh, has given me a new perspective on my day job. Uh, I enjoy it and try to remember that God's put me there for a reason and that I should serve Him well in the capacity of which I serve them. Become a Christian apologist right where you are. See where it leads you. Train your kids. Uh, train your church. Evangelize your coworkers. Uh, love your boss well. Go to seminary. Enroll in an online training course. Uh, buy some good apologetics books. Whatever you do, just do it for the glory of God, obviously, and for the advancement of the good news of Jesus. So now let's look at our uh, video of the day. If you haven't watched it yet, I highly recommend watching uh, William Lane Craig and Sir Roger Penrose discuss the universe and theism as an explanation of Penrose's metaphysical beliefs over at the Unbelievable YouTube channel. I'll leave a link in the description. Uh, this was just an absolute classic. So Roger Penrose is a famous English mathematical physicist uh, who worked with Stephen Hawking to form the Hawking-Penrose singularity theorem. Don't ask me, I don't know. Um, Penrose's uh, deep commitment to science, notwithstanding, is is uh, he is also deeply philosophical, which uh, makes him differ much from Stephen Hawking, who said that philosophy is dead. So Penrose um, is delightfully more wise than that. Um, again, perhaps Hawking was joking. 
But Penrose has metaphysical beliefs, namely that abstract mathematical objects exist, minds exist, and obviously the physical world exists. Um, these three aspects of reality form his metaphysical beliefs. So the mystery for Penrose, as he says, is how do these three connect? or what unifies them. So the physical world seems to be governed, but with mathematical precision. Uh, yet the abstract, like mathematics, is obviously not causally related to the physical. How could it be? What has the number 2 ever caused? Uh, 2 plus 2 certainly equals 4, but 2 plus 2 has never put $4 in my pocket. Uh, likewise, Penrose finds it impossible, or improbable, that immaterial minds could arise from purely physical processes. And there's good reason to think that's probably the case. So the problem for Penrose is the unity of the abstract, the mental, and the physical. How do these things come together? Now in the video, William Lane Craig suggested that an omniscient mind, or an infinite mind, like God, could have brought the physical world into being with mathematical precision. Now we know that minds are causally related to the physical from direct experience, and we know that minds can contain mathematical objects. We do math with our minds. So an omniscient mind like God would unify Penrose, Penrose's tripartite metaphysic. But Penrose's response to this was it was kind of silly. His response was that, and I respect the man, but it, his response was that he didn't like Craig's explanation because he, quote, wasn't sure what it was supposed to solve. I, I don't even understand what that means. What do you mean you don't know what it's supposed to solve? It's supposed to solve the unity of your metaphysical beliefs. Reject it if you want, but you don't understand how it unifies them? I mean, Craig's explanation was very simple. There's, there's no way Penrose didn't actually understand it. There's no way. He's, he wanted to reject it um, and keep things as a mystery, which is fine, but just just say so. Uh, anyway, go watch the video for yourself. It's a classic. I think you'll enjoy it. Before we wrap up the episode, um, uh, let's take a look at, wait for it, the comment section. Yes, the dreaded comment section that you're never supposed to look at, but... Um, after my interview with Doug from Pine Creek, I got a flood of new atheist followers and commenters and things like that, and some of the comments were straight garbage, but uh, a lot were pretty friendly. And uh, here is Justin Aducci, hope I'm pronouncing that right, from YouTube, uh, who I assume is an atheist, I'm pretty confident he is, and the, his comment said, I understand your goal, parentheses, at least in part, at least part of it, is to provide fruitful, honest, and even-tempered discussions between Christians and skeptics, and I think... One, you're accomplishing that goal so far. And two, that's beautiful, man. Keep on keeping on. You keep on keeping on too, Justin. Thanks so much for the comment. And thanks so much for joining us uh, today. If you enjoyed the episode, be sure to hit the like button, subscribe, leave us a review, and of course, uh, follow the link below labeled Support Help Me Believe to become a patron. And uh, we appreciate your support that helps us and allows us to keep uh, putting out free material that defends and uh, spreads the truth of Christianity. My name is Hayden Clark, and this is Help Me Believe. 